Welcome everyone to another episode of Pulmonary Palliative Care, Weaved Lung Together. I'm your host, Patricia Fogelman, joined with my co-host, Jennifer Wesco from the Wesco Foundation for Pulmonary Fibrosis. And we are joined today by a very special guest, uh, Dr. Christopher Jones, who's Director of Outpatient Palliative Care and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Palliative Medicine, who is joining us here to talk a little bit about hospice and advanced lung disease. So welcome, Dr. Jones. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be with everybody. Thank you for joining us today. You know, we thought we'd start off by asking some kind of obvious questions, things that we hear a lot in, you know, both the pulmonary and advanced uh, lung disease space. And that first question is really kind of, you know, palliative care and hospice sounds so alike, right? And there's a constant conflation of both. And I think sometimes people feel like, oh, this is splitting hairs. And so really, how would you explain the difference? And how would we look to kind of time for either or both with our advanced lung disease patients? Yeah, this is such an important question. You know, people, I, I think patients get really worried about palliative care and hospice being the same. And, you know, I, I want to continue to take treatment and I, I don't want to give up or, or, you know, families are worried that their loved one's going to give up. And I think palliative care, we have a tremendous branding problem right? Because we are glued onto this thing that's viewed nationally and really internationally as the end of life people. And you don't, it's, it's a bad brand to be the end of life people when it's not what you do. So importantly, it depends on the location. What I always say is if you've seen one palliative care program, you've seen one palliative care program because they are all really different. But for a lot of palliative care programs, especially ones that grew out of hospice, initially what hospice is we know is comfort-directed care for people in the last six months of their life. And there were a lot of hospices that's, or and health systems that said, wait a minute, why should we just try to help people not suffer in the last six months of their life? And so palliative care kind of grew out of that and has moved upstream. If I could rebrand us, it would be a sufferologist's take me to where the suffering is, and I'm going to try to help with that. Mm -hmm. So the, the big distinction, and this is where I hope it doesn't feel like splitting hairs, is hospice care is really end-of-life focused care, not brink-of-death care, but comfort-focused care for people in the last six months. And palliative care is symptom-focused care associated with planning for the future, independent of prognosis, and independent of aggressiveness of medical interventions. So if you want, I call it all the things, if you want all the things, palliative care can walk alongside you, whether you're going to live another 10 years, one year, or one day. Mm -hmm. If you want all the things, you probably don't want hospice because there are definitely some trade-offs that come with all the benefits that are attached to a hospice program. You know, I like to say that sometimes my job is to support people through tough times and with tough decisions. And I think a lot of times with our advanced lung disease patients, they are just facing very tough times and very tough decisions. And many times those conversations seem to just kind of hinge on, when am I supposed to bring up hospice to this patient? And Jen and I do a lot of work in the support and care of pulmonary fibrosis patients, as well as their caregivers. And so for that population, as an example, you know, what would you say would be kind of the timing to start thinking about, number one, integrating palliative care as an option, but then also more specifically when to really think about timing hospice and 
Should there then be a conversation about the potential role of hospice timed earlier, you know, than when you want to bring out the initiation of hospice conversation? Yeah, yeah. what a great question. And I think one of the hard pieces here is palliative care is still very much a scarce resource. So I was at the University of Pennsylvania before I returned to Duke in 2020, and we didn't have any palliative care for non-cancer diagnoses Mm -hmm. until 2019. That was when we opened our first non-oncology palliative care outpatient program. Now, we could do anything in the hospital, but in terms of a clinic-based program, we didn't have anything outside the cancer center until 2019. So that's not that long ago, right? Right. And this is not like a little fly-by-night health system. This is a place that really has worked hard to take care of people from a, a couple of states around. So I think there are a lot of people who are listening to this even if they say, yes, I definitely want to pull palliative care in, pull palliative care in early, there might not be any resources. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of places, the resources for palliative care have grown out of the hospices, like I mentioned earlier. And so there are a, a good number of hospices around the country, typically the big not-for-profit hospices, although some of the for-profit hospices have done this as well where they have kind of an upstream symptom management, usually advanced practice provider driven program where they see people about every six weeks or so, eight weeks, and kind of walk alongside trying to help with symptoms and also trying to normalize hospice as a thing that we can pull in outside of brink of death care. Mm -hmm. So your question of like, when do we use this? I think that the answer, especially for palliative care, is as soon as the suffering happens, and suffering can be defined any of a number of ways. I laugh, one of the early consults that I got at Penn, one of the pulmonologists grabbed me, grabbed my forearm with both of her her hands, and she said, do you, do you have space for a visit today? And I said, yeah, I sure do. What, what's going on? She goes, he just keeps crying. And you know what? If that's what gets me in the door, I'll take it with an with an early program. And and so I think the psychological distress around advanced illness that's an easy one. The depression, the anxiety. I I complimented the chief of pulmonary up at Penn, a guy named Jason Christie, and I said, you know, Jason, you guys have really your group has really figured out how to use me. Um, Some of the other groups are having a difficult time to know when to pull me in. And he's a pretty casual guy. And he goes, dude, my patients can't breathe. It's really obvious when we need you because they can't breathe. Right. And and so that was that was actually a light bulb moment for me because the obvious symptoms, right, the dyspnea, the chest pain for the heart failure patients, those are obvious times to get palliative care involved. We opened a, a renal clinic at the same time. And when renal patients are sick, they just sit on the couch, right? They get, they get, yeah, they're a little short of breath, but they're mostly fatigued. They sleep a lot. And so those symptoms, kind of the quiet symptoms are harder to find. So what I kind of landed on in the pen system was if your patient has been, let's pick IPF, for example, COPD could work. CHF actually pre the big blockbuster treatment that came out in 2019 was, was similar. You know, if, if you're at the spot where you're thinking you probably need opioids for dyspnea, please, please, please let me manage that because we know that that's kind of a, a later stage symptom or later stage intervention. So I'll manage that. I can talk about goals, values, and preferences, and then I can pull in the hospice people at the right time. 
And, and I think one of the big mistakes we make is we don't talk about anything until we talk about hospice. And hospice is always too early to talk about until it's too late. So that's why, you know, people are eligible for hospice for six months. And the average length of stay in hospice in the United States is 17 days. Mm. So half of people have died within three weeks of signing up for hospice care. So this is one of the things where it can be challenging to know. You don't want to scare the patient. You don't want them to think that you're giving up on them. I've had a lot of people say, well, I don't want to take away anybody's hope. And I think a lot of what we do in palliative care is try to manage the symptoms. And what I always say is, if you can breathe, you can chew. And if you can chew, you can eat. So I try to link palliative care helping with dyspnea as something that can help people to eat better. You think about it, you really have to hold your breath to chew. Um, and so that, that'll cost people some pounds if they can't breathe. And then pulling in hospice, normalizing it as these are the people we use when, for example, the OFEB isn't helping anymore. And if this intervention isn't the right thing, I don't ever want you to hear there's nothing else we can do. I want you to hear there's a lot we can do. It's less aimed at the lungs and more aimed at the symptoms and quality of life. Would you say, Dr. Jones, um, about the value of supportive care in terms of support groups, right? And teaching the patients, their care partners, their families, the value of palliative care and understanding the difference between palliative medicine and hospice is uh, one of the ways in teaching you know, the, the patients and the families into having that conversation with their pulmonologist and trying to explore that opportunity to, again, have that le- other level of support. Yeah, it, it's an interesting kind of dichotomy. There's two things that I'm going to pick out of that question. One is this idea of supportive care versus palliative care. There are some people in my field who care desperately and cling to the word palliative care and with the thought being, you know, if you call us supportive care, then people are just going to go, oh, I know what supportive care is. It's hospice, right? That you can't just run away from the name. You have to re-educate people on what the service is. Um, I'm not that. I don't care. You call us the butterfly club as long as we can get and help people. That, that's, that's what's important to me. And then you, the other piece of your question that I think is really interesting is if we're coming, if the request for palliative care is coming from the patient and family, as opposed to from the clinician, you, you have two different levers that you're pulling here, right? The clinician needs to tell the patient, I'm not giving up on you. I'm not throwing you out of my office. I This is a group that helps me take better care of patients. And honestly, I need help with your shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. That's a very normalizing it. I have everybody when the OFEV is not working as well, see palliative care because they've really been a help to my patients before. Mm-hmm. So I think normalizing it is helpful. If the family's trying to request it, well, that's complicated, right? Because there are absolutely some folks listening to this, although maybe we have a a bit of a a different audience who would click onto the palliative care pulmonary podcast. But I think a lot of folks in pulmonary would might say, ah, it's too early yet. It's not Mm -hmm. time for palliative care yet. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that I would encourage people to reframe is if the patient or their family is endorsing suffering of any sort, mm-hmm. it's not too early for palliative care. Mm-hmm. I've definitely seen people met them and said, boy, you're the healthiest person I'll see all week. 
what do you say we check in again in four or six months? Right. And if anything gives you trouble between now and then, you're able to get me through the MyChart platform on, on Epic. And that's worked really well. Um, but, but I think if I have a patient or family that's asking for help and they're specifically asking for palliative care, I fall over backwards to see those people because right. typically they've had some good experience with palliative care in the past, or you've got an educated family member who's done some looking and said, well, any port in a storm, get me all the help that I can get. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we'll come up with you know, some intervention or some resource that that folks have not thought of. I want to take one minute just to make the distinction between palliative medicine and palliative care. You know, I'm not happy about the fact that I probably work in a palliative medicine clinic right now. We've got eight or nine providers, but we only have two days of social work support for all of those providers. Um, and, and so we don't really have that wraparound. True palliative care is a wraparound interdisciplinary team mm-hmm. that nurses and social workers and chaplains and psychologists and physical therapists and bereavement support. Mm-hmm. That's not, since most of those people can't build a Medicare fee schedule, most of those people don't exist unless a health system is make or a hospice is making a big investment in the program. Mm-hmm. So I, I think at the least, there's palliative medicine in a lot of places. And at the most, there are really thoughtfully designed palliative care programs that can wrap around people. And I know within our group, if I've got somebody who needs resources, then I'm going to pull my social work colleague in and they'll really dig through family structure and resources and, and really try to be helpful there way outside of what I know as a, as a boarded physician. Is there any, like, what are the uniquely valuable aspects of hospice engagement in the care of the advanced lung disease patient? Because I, I know that there's benefits in all these different disease groups. But when we drill it down, you know, by advanced lung disease, what would we say, you know, are some of the uniquely valuable points that hospice brings for them? Yeah, I think especially hospice. And remember, we're going to define that as symptom-based care for people in the last six months of their life. Hospice, because of the way the Medicare hospice benefit was built, really is that ideal wraparound service. So at a minimum, hospice has to have a medical director, a nurse, a social worker, and then there are other components of an interdisciplinary team that are that are part of things. Almost everyone has a chaplain available, for example. Um, so I think the big benefit of hospice in particular is that you've got a nurse who can help with the medical stuff and they they can be a liaison back to the the pulmonary team for example but i think the approach of hospice where the family is the unit of care as opposed to the patient that's wildly different right if a family member calls to talk to me that's volunteer time i i joke that I spend some of my week as part of the Medicare Volunteer Corps, where I do this work that's unreimbursable, right? But hospice, the way it's designed is anybody who loves the patient is part of the the center of, of care. And I think so much when people have advanced lung disease, they're really worried they're going to suffocate when they die. And having somebody both the social worker who's trained in therapy and in counseling around how do you navigate those fears and a nurse who says, we're going to be in this together through the end. 
and you've told me you're worried about suffocating at the end, I will tell you I've got medicines that can help to avoid that problem. Does it work 100% of the time? No. Uh, nothing works 100% of the time. Sometimes people become acutely dyspneic at 2.30 in the morning and die in five minutes. And there's just nothing that oral medicines would do just because of bioavailability in that amount of time. But generally, you know, people have, you have some inkling that things are getting worse. You can ramp up the opioid if that's what's needed. And what I'll say to patients, obviously after I've met them and, and known them a bit is, you know, if all of your awake time is suffering time and you're short of breath every second of the day, there are a lot of people who tell me I'll trade some of this alertness for better symptom management. And then you just refocus what your goals are, refocus what you're aiming for. When I mention hospice to a patient, I always say there are two big misconceptions about hospice. First, I describe it before I use the word, because I don't want that whatever emotions there are to cloud it. So let me give you an example, and, and this may be helpful for folks. So when I talk about care for people with advanced illness, I have a very similar way that I mention it to people. I say, you know, when I think about care outside the hospital or outside the office, I think about three different options. One is what I have, which is nothing. If I get sick, I call my doctor. If I'm really sick, I call 911. I'm worried, given your lung disease, that that's not enough support. And generally, people nod. I say the next thing that I think about is something called home health. You may have had that before. It was really designed for people who had surgery and needed their wounds and bandages managed. But now, you know, nurses and physical therapists can come out, but they only come out once or twice a week and usually only for four or six or eight weeks before they have to sign you off. I'm a little worried that that won't be quite enough support either. I'm going to pause for a second. I, I only approach this when people have given me kind of a comfort focused goal. I say the third type of care is the most comprehensive care I can get for somebody at the house. It is a team of people, doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, nursing assistants, and they bring care to you. So it's a lot less going into the office. They're able to come to you if you need equipment like a hospital bed, a wheelchair, a commode chair, oxygen, they'll provide that and pay for it. If you need medications for symptom management, they'll provide it and pay for it. And the thing that I really like about this type of group, notice what I haven't said yet, about this type of group is if it's 2.30 in the morning and you have a an emergency, instead of calling 911 and sitting in the waiting room or in the the emergency room for 16 hours, the nurse will say, and there's always a nurse on call, you know that box of medicine we put in your house, take this medicine at this dose. And if you're not a whole lot better in an hour, I'll come out and see you. And then I pause and I say, do you have any idea what that type of care that I just described might be called? And it really does run the gambit from people going, no, I have no idea what you described to, is that home health? No, that's not home health. And, and then I have other people say, you're talking about hospice, right? And no matter what the answer is, I'll say, you know, what I'm talking about is hospice. And there's two big misconceptions about hospice. One is it's a place you go. And I just explained to you, they come to you. And the other misconception is that hospice is who you call when you have a day or two left to live. And what I found in my family, and I tell two stories of my wife's granddad who had lung cancer and a cousin of mine who in her 20s died of glioblastoma, I tell the stories of those two family members and say, you know, we had hospice for my wife's granddad for six months, for my cousin for a month, and my cousin got married while she was on hospice and hospice sent two nursing assistants to help get her in her wedding gown. 
So in my family, hospice is very much the living people rather than the dying people. And the reason we've been able to organize it that way is that we call them in earlier rather than later. And there are a lot of people who kind of have this firm boundary between their personal life and their professional life. That's not me. You're going to get all of me, whether you like it or not. Um, I'm kind of the Popeye approach of I am what I am, right? But but sharing those stories and then patients really do think, if this is what you do for your family, then it's probably what we should do for our family. And I, I found that that bit of vulnerability to be really helpful. This is not me in the white coat saying, this is what you should do. This is me thinking, if you were my mom, how would we approach this? And, and, and that's been, I think, pretty helpful for folks. Well, and I, I think, Dr. Jones, there's data, isn't there, in the communication and research space that supports that when we as providers share our personal experiences in the context of these advanced care or code status or end-of-life care planning conversations, that, that in fact will bolster support for the choice of, you know, what we as providers or clinicians may say is the best appropriate choice for this patient versus the less desirable or higher risk choice. I mean, I th there's, I think there's data that supports that too. I think anytime you're having a we conversation instead of a you conversation, it, it's a much easier, it's a much easier and more impactful thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think about when people tell me what to do, boy, I'm not the best at doing it. When you tell me why, or we talk together about how, then I'm much more likely to kind of follow you uh, moving forward. So so I, I totally agree. I think as much as we can be human with our patients, that really is empathy, right? Mm -hmm. Sympathy is the, ah, poor you, but empathy is the, mm -hmm. this is hard and I'm in it with you. Mm -hmm. So that I, I really find the bringing my personal stories and and some experiences that I've had into the relationship with patients to, to improve empathy. And honestly, it makes for a much better day if you're with your patients rather than only for your patients. I think that's a huge distinction, right? Mm -hmm. From a quality of life perspective for both our patients as well as for ourselves in that therapeutic alliance that we wanna build. And I think that fosters better communication clearer conversations. And I think it also really humanizes the topic, right? Because some of us have a tendency just from how we were trained or our discomfort that may come very naturally with these types of discussions to look for the clinical words, you know, versus the humanity of the conversation. So I think that's great. And, you know, Patty, there are two big training platforms for communication nationally. One is something called Vital Talk and another one out of Atul Gawande's shop up in Boston, um, Ariadne Labs, is called Serious Illness Conversation Project. And they give some guidance around interpreting patients' questions. And, you know, we're very good in healthcare at retreating into the data because we know it right? It's our, I, I joke that data is the snuggie of medicine. It makes us feel warm. It gives us some comfort because I know that study that the patient doesn't. So I can, I can expound on median survival and those sorts of things. It's our hot cocoa with marshmallows. I like it. I like, I do like that very much. I wish, I don't like the season when one has to drink hot cocoa. I much prefer the mojito with mint. But the idea though, is when a patient says to you, you know, you give bad news and, and the patient says, what are we going to do? You know, there's really two questions there. 
One is an informational question. And we're excellent at talking about, well, the OFEV didn't work. Let's talk about the next drug. But sometimes what it is, is it's not a desire for information. It's an exclamation of surprise or distress. And so if the patient asks a question like that, what I typically recommend is to offer some sort of an empathic statement, right? And empathic statements are things like a naming statement, something like, I can't imagine how scary this must be, or what we call an understanding statement. I can't possibly understand what you're going through. Can you tell me a bit more about it? A respecting statement, which is really like a praising statement. You know, you've done everything that we've asked you to do. You stopped smoking. You've taken your medications. I'm so sorry that this is getting worse. And if you respond to one of those potentially emotional exclamations with one of those empathic statements, the key then is to shut up. And this is really hard, right? So they say something emotional, you respond with something empathic, and then shut up. Let them fill that space. And you know that can five seconds, eight seconds, 10 seconds, the patient will fill that space typically with something really meaningful. And on the times that I've gotten this wrong, and I've absolutely used an empathic response in the past when the patient was like, no, 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 like, what are we going to do? I'm not, I'm not freaking out. I, I just want to plan. And if you say something like, I can't imagine what it's like to get this news. Yeah, it is hard. I'd really like to think about what our next treatment option is. And then you, you've erred on the side of a four second foray into being supportive. And then if, if they want information, they're just going to ask you for it in the next question. I think a lot of people worry that if you make that empathic statement, they're just going to cry and you're going to lose your whole visit. I don't, I think I've seen that twice in the office because mm -hmm. generally, you know, absent the new disclosure of cancer, which that's one, that's probably all you can do in a day. You really can't talk through carboatope too much if you're telling people when they didn't expect it, that they have cancer. But, but the idea of, you know, progressing through a treatment or having to shift treatments because of side effects or something. If they say, oh, I, I, what are we going to do? Responding with something empathic, giving them a chance to emote, because frankly, they can't hear you and understand anyway while their head is spinning. So giving that, that empathic response allows them a chance to get past or at least deal somewhat with that emotional response. Vitaltalk.org is a place you can go for uh, maybe.com, but I think they're nonprofit. I think it's vitaltalk.org is a, a place you can go. And these are these empathic statements are specifically their mnemonic is nurse and URSE. And you know it it may sound hokey, but having one of these from each category when you're in a really highly emotionally charged spot, having something that you can grab at when your mind is spinning uh, can be really, really helpful. And patients don't know if you said it earlier today. They just know that you're not glossing over the fact that they're having suffering. And I think Vital Talk is great because they have an app as well, which I usually have my residents and fellows download to their phone so they can, in a pinch, look up some you know, talking maps, some verbal language pointers in certain situations. So I always like to say, you know, I'm not here at two in the morning when you want to have a really critical code status conversation with this with a patient. So here's a site that you can, you know, here's an app you can use that'll give you some more information. And so I think those types of communication tools are so essential. What do you think about the wish, worry, wonder statements? Oh, those are gold. You know, I, I think about them often in the oncology 
spot. And, you know, when you imagine you're the oncologist and you say, there's no more chemo and the patient or family, they really want more chemo. So then now you've suddenly become pro-cancer, right? You're an oncologist. Your whole raison d'etre is to stamp out cancer. But now you're viewed as unallied with the patient. You're on the side of cancer, which nobody wants to be. So this, this idea of wish, worry, wonder, kind of the three W's, and you really can use them in three consecutive sentences. What I found is I wish allows you to make a statement that naturally negates itself without you having to do it. Now, the benefit of a podcast is that this next statement that I'm about to make, I'm not going to spoil it. But if I said to the, everyone listening, I wish I were a bikini model. You can't see me, but you know I'm not. And you probably could have imagined I'm not up till this point. But that idea of I wish something naturally says that it's not a thing, right? And so I wish there was another medication for your lung disease that would be helpful. You don't have to say, but there isn't. It naturally fills itself in. So that's the I wish. The I worry is really important because that gives you a chance to talk about what might hurt them. So I wish there was another medication that would help with your lung disease. I'm really worried that if we keep giving you the OFEV and you keep having the diarrhea that you're having, that we're going to make you weaker rather than stronger. And then that last piece, I wonder, gives you a chance to set a potential other course. I wonder if treating your shortness of breath with medications designed to trick the brain rather than treat the lung couldn't be something that we could use here. And I have some colleagues who've been really helpful to past patients. Um, it's a group called Palliative or Supportive Care. So I wish tells you what you can't have without allying you with the negative. I worry gives the reason why the wish thing can't happen. And then I wonder offers the patient a, a path forward. And so those, those things just seem, they work really well because they're an empathic way to tell folks when things aren't working instead of the cold, this isn't working anymore. This is futile for us to continue giving you this medication. That word is never, ever the right word. It's time for hospice now right? Like that does not do, you can convey the exact same idea with, I'm really worried that this, or I, I wish the OFEV was doing a better job stabilizing your lung disease. I'm really worried that the diarrhea is going to make you weaker. I wonder if we could bring in some help from palliative care to try to think of other approaches that could help you with your symptoms, right? Two totally different ways to get to the same spot, but you know, this is something I think back, I was a fellow 13 years ago. And I remember watching the attendings and go, oh, these these people are wizards, right? Like communication is just, it's wizardry. You're either born with it or you're not. Uh -uh. It is a totally learnable skill. And it is so much easier than hyponatremia, right? Hyponatremia is hard to learn. Communication, not hard to learn. Nurse statements, a, a talking map like remap, some wish, worry, wonders. It's, it's a really tight, group of tools you can reach for that align you with patients and show them that you really, 
you really are not detached. You care about them. You, you're just stuck with the limits that we have in medical science nowadays. And being working with the patients in not a medical type setting, more in an edutherapeutic type of uh, approach is that, and speaking of data, I mean, I would only imagine these type of approaches and learning in this conversation about these type of approaches is uh, increases adherence to treatment and compliance to treatment and having those relationships with uh, your provider in a very strong way um, can only benefit the patient as the whole person. And so, I mean, completely being out of it and learning it in this conversation is, is just so helpful for, for our patients as a whole, right? So um, I just had to add that in there. Yeah, I, I, have a, I have a friend who's a rheumatologist and he, when he started a private practice job, he kind of, he, he's at the beach. So he came in in like khakis and a golf shirt and found that he couldn't get his patients to do any of what he wanted them to do. And then became a little more formal in his dress and a little less formal in his communication with, with some of this wish worry and, and has, has found a big improvement in adherence. So, so the, the thing that I took from that story is, you, if you have somebody who you've got a relationship with, and for our for our friends in pulmonary, you've got ten or fifteen minutes of an absolutely prolonged visit on a follow up is twenty minutes at a lot of places, right? You've got a very short time to try to build some rapport, but that rapport will pay off for every minute that you're not with the patient because they're a heck of a lot more likely to do the thing that you and they decide on together if you are a person to them and not just a doctor telling them what to do. Beautifully stated. It's so true. I want to put a plug in for, um, there are some new codes that are coming out January of 24. Um, so depending on when you're listening to this, that may be out already. Um, there, there, something called um, principal illness navigation or PIN codes, which allow patients who have a serious illness that's likely to last three months or longer to receive navigation services paid for by Medicare. Now, this is specifically starting out in fee-for-service Medicare. Uh, this just came out in the final rule um, on November the 1st of 23. And if you have the, the, the thing that kind of triggered me to think about this, Jennifer, is that you had mentioned kind of that edu sort of yeah. approach, right? Mm -hmm. And so these PIN codes are not codes for, for uh, services provided by doctors or nurse practitioners. Mm -hmm. They're provided by either non-clinical navigators or peer support specialists. So mm -hmm. part of the idea was in substance use or mental health, having somebody who's been through bipolar disorder to help you navigate your bipolar disorder can be really helpful. But I'm imagining, you know, the, the community pulmonary office that has patients who are just having a hard time, mm -hmm. having somebody who can teach them about self-efficacy and about meditation and about connecting with the healthcare system and about speaking up for themselves rather than waiting for their COPD exacerbation to lead them on BiPAP, right? Mm -hmm. All of this stuff is actually now payable 
under fee-for-service Medicare. Uh, there's, a, there's that slight cost sharing if people don't have a supplemental plan of 20%. But you know, we did a, a look at Duke and of all the patients that we saw in palliative care, 97% of our patients had a supplemental plan to their Medicare. So we had almost nobody who actually had to do the copay. I know that's been a, or coinsurance. I've had people worry about, well, if I recommend this sort of extra support to the patient and they have to pay the bill, are they going to be mad at me? It's mm-hmm. super uncommon that they have to pay the bill. Mm-hmm. Part of starting up a PIN program is having a consent process in place that does mention, listen, if, if you're co-insurance doesn't pay for this, you're on the hook for 20%, but 20% of the PIN code for the month is about 12 bucks. And Mm -hmm. so a patient having someone they can call to help navigate them through the healthcare system for 12 bucks, that's a pretty sweet concierge price. Uh, Most places charge a heck of a lot more than that. Absolutely. So Chris, as we kind of start to wind down here on our podcast, I have two important questions. Um, One is how would a patient access hospice, you know, so how do we, you know, how do providers access hospice and what's, what's really the, you know, the constitutional elements of that? Like, how do we know it's covered? How, what is it going to cost the patient? Like, what's the, you know, so if I offer it to a patient, they're going to, they may potentially say to me, what's that going to cost me or what's that going to require from me? So how do I access that for a patient? Yeah. So, so the access is pretty easy. Every hospice has somebody or multiple people who function as intake folks. And so, you know, then you call the 800 number or you call the local number and you're going to get somebody who can work you through the process. Picking which hospice is complicated. You know, some places there's only one, you know, that we have a couple of counties around us where I've got one hospice there. Well, that's easy. I know just who to call. The Consumer Reports actually did something in the mid 2000s about, you know, they they tell you what a good toaster is. They did an article on what a good hospice is. And what they said, this kind of works like the seven dwarfs. There are six of them and I can never remember all of them at once. Like I always forget dopey or whatever, but the things that pop to my head are Medicare certified, of course, because otherwise they're not going to get paid. Not-for-profit hospice. And generally the, the data show that on aggregate, not-for-profit hospices have a little bit higher quality measures than for-profits. Um, although that can vary um, kind of branch by branch. Uh, I really recommend a hospice with an inpatient unit because if things are going bad and you need to get out of the house, you don't want to go to a nursing home and you don't want to go to the ER. There are a lot of counties around the country where there just isn't an inpatient hospice unit, but way more counties around the country, at least where the population is, have inpatient hospice freestanding units or floors of hospitals that are rented out. So Medicare certified, not-for-profit with an inpatient unit. And the other recommendation that Consumer Reports had is that they provide 24-hour care, which they absolutely have to, and that they've been around for 20 years or longer. And that, you know, that's an important distinction. Now, the Medicare hospice benefit is the same age as me. It's 43. It started in 1980, signed by Reagan, and it actually started to pay in 1981. And so if you've got a hospice that's been around for 20 years, it's one of the early comers in the industry, and it's stayed around for a while. So that's where I do see some value there. Patty, your question specifically about cost, Medicare patients get hospice with no copay. 
technically hospice can charge a copay of about five bucks for a drug. And it is way more expensive to charge you five bucks than it is to write off five bucks. So the almost no hospice has copay. Now, if you've got a Blue Cross plan or you've got a Humana plan, they can do whatever they want ultimately. But the cynic in me will point out that it's almost always cheaper for the insurer to pay for hospice than it is to pay for the ICU stay. Insurers very much have backed away from putting barriers in front of hospice care. The only thing that I, I don't want to oversell here is, especially for chronic lung disease, when you get a nurse coming into that house once or twice a week and patients are taking their medications and they're not getting volume overloaded from their concomitant CHF, some people can really hit a level spot. And so it's not uncommon where four months, six months, 10 months, 15 months in, there's really not any decline anymore. And the reason there's not any decline, and this is what breaks my heart is because hospice is managing this stuff and they're keeping these folks out of $50,000 hospitalizations. But the Office of the Inspector General, not unreasonably has said, if hospices have a number of long stay patients, and long stays defined as longer than six months, that's how long you're eligible for it, um, then we're going to take a closer look at them. And they actually put out reports now to tell hospices kind of who's off the bell curve in terms of length of stay. So there are definitely some hospices where if you've been on for a year, year and a half, they really have to sign you off because it becomes a legal risk for them. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody signed off hospice who then the bottom falls out in two weeks or three weeks because they lose the social support. So it, it's, a, it's, it's not the perfect system. And I know there's some work being done in Washington around how do we modernize the hospice benefit. But boy, it is a heck of a lot better than calling 911 every time you're short of breath. Yeah, I would agree. I think the management for dyspnea crisis alone can make hospice an invaluable gift, you know, to advance lung disease patients. And that's notwithstanding all of the other supportive measures they bring in for the caregivers and the family. Um, and I, you know, I would add to that also that hospice continues to care for our families, you know, after the death of our patients too, you know, and provides that ongoing support for, I think, up to a year or a little over a year. Yeah, that that's, that's become a, a bit of an important point when we have patients dying in the hospital. You know, sometimes we will bring in the hospice group and the providers in the hospital are like, what's the point of this? They're going to die in two days, no matter what we do. Well, if we bring in hospice, the social worker is going to counsel the, the daughter who's crying at the bedside. The nurse is going to be an extra set of eyes and ears around symptom management. And the bereavement people will look after this family for at least 12 months after their loved one's death. So it really does. It's, you know, even for those very short stay patients, there's that enduring legacy of bereavement support that just doesn't exist outside the hospice benefit, unfortunately. I, I take it back. Some churches have really good bereavement programs, but that's the minority for sure. Yeah, I think that what we're showing with this discussion is that there's such a positive impact we can have, mm -hmm. you know, the care we give advanced lung disease patients with early integration of both palliative medicine, palliative care, as well as hospice, you know, when we identify the appropriate patients. And I think that helps improve not just patient caregiver satisfaction, but provider satisfaction as well. So the, you know, there's this broad strokes utility to the care we can deliver to this group. So I would kind of open it up to both you and Jen at this point for, you know, any final thoughts, comments, words of encouragement to our audience, you know. 
I would have to add in when having a conversation with as a provider to talk with your patient about palliative care. We often talk about Patty, you've you've educated me so much about palliative care and a resource that was very helpful for me and into um, for our patients and families we work with is getpalliativecare.org. So if uh, folks are asking about it, it's a great uh, resource for them to look into to understand it much better in in very much layman's terms. Um, So that's a great resource. And so I just wanted to add that in the conversation or ending of the conversation. Yeah, that's a nice patient facing uh, website that that like just like you said, defines palliative care and makes it not scary, frames it as an extra layer of support, which is really what we aspire to be. We don't take over people. We pull alongside the mental image that I have. And I'm in North Carolina. We're on the, the Atlantic Ocean, obviously, is this idea of a harbor pilot. And, you know, there there are professional ships captains who get on these big boats as they come into the harbor because the harbor pilot, they know where the shoal is. They know how the currents run. And that's really what I try for our palliative care group at Duke to be is we're not going to tell you what to do. We're not going to force anything on you. We're going to figure out what's important to you. So to take the harbor pilot metaphor, what destination are you headed to? And we're going to try to keep you off the rocks on the way there because we've been we've through this channel before. We know we know where the sand is. We know where the currents run. If you've never done this before, let us help you. You're still going to drive the ship. You're still going to decide the destination, but we're going to help try to take the suffering out of it. So harbor pilots, sufferologist, supportive care, palliative care, pick your favorite, um, your favorite name for it and just frame it, I think, for patients as this is a normal group of people that helps my patients not have suffering. And I think if you normalize it that way and you you really do partner with an organization, it'll decrease some phone calls to your office because they'll have somebody else to call when they're having particular trouble. And it will hopefully allow these terminal illnesses to be more of a landing a glider rather than landing a helicopter without a rotor. So how do we mm-hmm. make the glide slope a bit more shallow than it could be otherwise? And how do we keep these patients, you know, from, you know, at this most vulnerable time of their life, you know, mm-hmm. from struggling and being alone? So I, I think this has been, you know, an especially illuminating conversation. I really hope that folks get as much out of it as both Jen and I have today. So Thank you again, Dr. Chris Jones from Duke University. Thank you for your time and for sharing your knowledge and your inspirational compassion. And I hope that we can all take a page from your book and carry it forward. So so happy to join and, and just really care deeply that patients don't suffer and have worked really hard along with thousands of colleagues in the country to move sufferology upstream. So thanks so much for having me both. Thank you so much. Thank you. 